Hi, Mike. All right, great. No more time changing. All right. Well, looking forward to our time coming up in the book of Ruth. I have ample opportunity. Pastor Dan has concluded our time in the Lord's Prayer, given ample opportunity to prepare for the book of Ruth, and I'm looking forward to sharing all of um, my studies with you and uh, enjoying our time, particularly in the Old Testament altogether. Just, I've been eager for a long time to uh, lead our church into the Old Testament, um, and yet, uh, I guess with fear and trepidation, I have somewhat avoided that. Um, there, there is much to be read from the Old Testament when it is uh, rightly done by the people of God. And so I look forward and appreciate my time in the last couple of weeks of getting ready and head toward Ruth. As we're doing so, however, uh, to bridge our time together from typically of what we have covered most recent in our time of Hebrews and with the Lord's Supper, and then kind of jumping into the Old Covenant or the Old Testament text, it popped up to me to be a necessary step uh, before we do so is to kind of tackle a preliminary question together. And so instead of it being an introduction, since it went on and on and on, it became its own sermon. So I would like, because I do feel it's definitely necessary for us together to read all that is provided for us in the Old Testament text, is to this morning tackle a preliminary question of the Old Testament text and our handling of it. And that preliminary question is quite simply this. How does a Christian approach the Old Testament text? I imagine either you have asked that question of yourself, or you have, by other means, perhaps not formally engaged that question in your own reading, in your own study, but it has at times, perhaps we could point out that Captain Obvious would be Leviticus. Perhaps there's times when you read through the Bible in a year, if that was for you, or if that is a method that you would take, or you are reading through the Kings, or you're reading in some portion that seems quite removed and a bit obscure. Maybe you ask yourself that morning for what you would consider, I don't know, maybe a devotional time for you is either, again, maybe not asked formally, but certainly mentally or emotionally, how do I as a Christian approach such an Old Testament text or any Old Testament text? I will give you my fundamental principle of approaching the Old Testament text, and then as I do, I hope to convince you in the next 45, 55, 65 minutes together that I'm right but I'm only right in so much as it is just my approach, but it is the rightful approach of the church proven out over The fundamental principle undergirding our interpretation of Ruth or our, together, our congregational interpretation of Old Testament texts in general is this, that both the Old Testament and the New Testament is a unified revelation of God. And that its 
thematic unity is found in the person of Jesus Christ. Our principle or fundamental principle undergirding our interpretive handling of the Old Testament text is that it is a unified revelation of God with the New Testament text and that that thematic unity is found in the person of Jesus Christ. Old Testament scholar Trevor Longman writes it this way. The individual books of the Old Testament exhibit diverse genres, which again will handle a diverse genre by handling Ruth. We're looking at narrative genre. So individual books of the Old Testament exhibit diverse genres, styles, and individual theologies. But tying them all together is the constant foreshadowing of and pointing forward to the person of Jesus Christ. Quite simply, as we consider redemptive history, from the fall, they look to Christ to come. We, in this era of the last days, look upon Jesus who has come. And yet, as we linger on this journey, awaiting the consummation of the day, we look to Christ to come again. Therefore, in any era of redemptive history, the goal, the outlook of the people of God is to look by faith to Christ, either to come upon him who has come, and to continue to look for him to come again. That is the movement of Holy Scripture. St. Augustine says it this way, the New Testament, now track this language. The New Testament is in the old concealed. The Old Testament is in the new revealed. This is the unity of the Bible, as Augustine explains it. Notice what he said. The New Testament is in the old. It isn't for us to approach the text of Old and New Testaments and suggest to ourselves there is a radical divide. There is an old and there is a new. They're separated and strictly divided into two Testaments. <laughs> Rather, we recognize with Augustine, the new is in the old, but a need. It is concealed in the old. That is, we would not suggest they're the same. The new is not the old, and the old is not the new. But neither are they divided. So as we think of them, it's applying to one group of people and applying to another group of people. Separate books, not in conversation. One is not enmeshed to the fabric of the other. There's just them and there's us. That's their literature and our literature. No, this literature is in that literature. Indeed, it is concealed. They're not the same. But neither are they 
just notice the Old Testament then is in the New. Revealed. So it is indeed clearer the object of our faith being the person of Jesus Christ of Nazareth is more clearly witnessed too. Is more clearly seen. But it isn't as we come to the first page of our, at the end of Malachi and into Matthew, there is a real thin sheet that divides the two and it says New Testament. We're like, great, we're in a new era. We're in a new book. So as to divide it from the old era, in the old literature. It isn't new, it's planned. It is new in its progress of the same plan. So we don't see a radical redemption being offered in the new that was strictly removed and cut off from the old. So that we would see the object of an old covenant saint's faith being something other than Christ our Lord. So that we see they're saved in one way in a different manner. And we're saved in a different way in a different manner in a different name. But the old covenant saints, faith rests in Christ alone. So the two are not divided, but indeed distinct. There is progress. Thus the language of new. But the newness is restricted to the newness of its revelation, but not of its plan and its purpose. This is important for us to grasp about the unity of Holy Scripture, lest we remove ourselves from two-thirds of the canon. And we find it to be a testament that speaks nothing to the reader today, but it's hidden Two-thirds of Scripture, again, of God's holy word, inerrant and inspired, is removed from the fabric of our lives. It is critical that we don't scientifically dissect it and remove ourselves as scientists studying it, but we unite ourselves to it rightly by faith. It isn't someone else's opinion. It is the one people of God throughout redemptive history. Those who look to Christ, who see Christ, and yet again wait for Christ. Understanding the Old Testament text really then in this morning. There's more I could say, of course I always feel that way. <laughs> but I have isolated, at least for our purposes this morning, I want to draw our attention to understanding the Old Testament text as a twofold endeavor. This morning I'm just going to get to a twofold endeavor of what I think is maybe the best way forward for us to consider of how we might make sense of the fact that we, as God's people, read the Old Testament as uh, it speaks to us, New Testament individuals, as pronouncing unto us the gospel of Christ. It is these two points that I would like to consider for the next few moments, and that is, first, this morning, out of that twofold endeavor, we endeavor, we must, the New Testament believer, must.
must endeavor to grasp that the Old Testament text provides us with applicational life instruction. I hope to prove that. That again, we must grasp the Old Testament text provides us a New Testament people with applicational life instruction. Say, that's easy. I've heard that many times before. I thought maybe you were heading in a different direction. It's important that we know, then, before we get started. When I say that the Old Testament provides us, New Testament believers, with applicational life instruction, with the unity of the Bible before us, we recognize it is not a choice as we approach the Old Testament that either, on the one hand, we receive helpful life instruction, or we see a portrait of Christ revealed with the call and provision of the gospel. That is, covenantal or reformed preachers tend to speak of Christ from the Old Testament. Others more so rely on life applicational instruction. I thought that was our choice as we look at the Old Testament text. No, it's a false choice. It isn't that it either provides life instruction and we study its members, we study the people of God, we see the character portraits portrayed, and we learn from them life applicational instruction, or we possess Christ in the Old Testament. We hear a redemptive story. We hear of his power, his provision, his sacrifice, his return. Rather, I would say, we, we need to affirm that Old Testament provides us with life applicational instruction unto Christ. Life applicational instruction in Christ of who we are, his people. It's a false choice that it's either helpful or it's christ -centered. It is both helpful because it's Christ-centered. <coughs> if I hope to convince you of this, 1 Corinthians 10. Join with me in 1 Corinthians 10 as we put down this sense of a false choice. Either we moralize or we preach helpful things or we see Christ. It is both. 1 Corinthians 10. As we look at the text together, I'll read verses 1 through 10 to make some brief observations that help clarify this issue of indeed point one that we have to grasp in the reading of the Old Testament is that there is in the two-thirds literature of Scripture life applicational instruction. First Corinthians 10, verse 1. Here's Paul speaking. I want you to know, brothers, Notice right off the bat right there, there are some things we must get ready about this text if he speaks to us through the church. I want you to know, brothers, that our fathers, not someone else's fathers, not, hey, I want you to know there's a distinct people in the old covenant that you have no connection to, neither their literature. You can maybe examine it and study it for future use or applicational topics, but hey, it's their fault. But I want you to know this, brothers, that our fathers. 
were all under the cloud, and all passed through the sea, and all were baptized into Moses. That our fathers, in the cloud and in the sea, and all ate the same spiritual food, and all drank the same spiritual drink. The way I thought the old covenant was external and physical. Only. No, that would be to divide the testaments. Indeed, there is a distinctive quality about their spirituality, about its fullness, and about our fullness in Christ, in this new and better covenant. But indeed, it isn't all external and physical. They're our fathers who ate the same spiritual food, drank the same spiritual drink. It's the same one. For they drank from the spiritual rock that followed them. So, so what is the drink? What is the spirit food, spirit drink that we share with our fathers? What's the rock that followed them? Well, that rock was Christ. Nevertheless, with most of them, God was not pleased, for they were overthrown in the wilderness. What am I to name this? Now these things took place as examples for us. So he affirms the unity of the Testaments. That we might not desire evil as they did. Do not be idolaters. As some of them were. As it's written, the people sat down to eat and drank and rose up to play. We must not indulge in sexual immorality as some of them did. 23,000 fell in a single day. We like them, must not put Christ to the test, as some of them did. They were destroyed by serpents, nor grumble, as some of them did, and were destroyed by the destroyer. I want to stop there. And one principle stands out to us about this text already from the Our Fathers, we must not like them, and the union to Christ between both our fathers and us, the New Testament church. And it is this. There is unity across the Testaments through the presence of Jesus Christ working among the one people of God. There is unity across the Testaments. That's our fathers. Through the presence of Christ among the one people of God. The same drink, the same food, the same rock. Christ, it is clear here from this first ten verses of 1 Corinthians 10, it is clear that Christ is at work among his people, the church. He is at work guiding and leading. He is at work in the church of the Old Testament, the children of Abraham. He is at work equally and evidently through the church in both Testaments. Indeed, there are distinctions of how he is at work. But there is no division that one God is at work in the Old Testament and another God is at work in the New Testament. Christ is at work in the church of the Old Testament through types, as well as foreshadowing events. And these types and signs 
foreshadowing events in liturgical services, save, nourish, confront, and provide for his people in the Old Covenant. This unity, as Paul speaks of here in 1 Corinthians 10, of the one people of God, through their shared unity in the one Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, is precisely why we turn to the Old Testament text for provisionary examples for our instruction. You see, if we don't have this shared Savior, if we're not united to the same Lord, if our faith rests in and receives of another Savior, then there is no reason to turn to the Old Testament text to grasp life's examples. Indeed, we should confirm with some that by and large two-thirds of the Christian canon is not directly applied to the New Testament church. This is a fatal theological error. It is precisely why this union in Christ, precisely why we can be confident in turning to the Old Testament text that there are examples among our fathers for our instruction. This is exactly what Paul says here as we conclude our time in 1 Corinthians 10, not our time together. So we've got to waste some time. <laughs> Taking you 
that is not common to man. What your forefathers went through, the challenges that they had, don't stand arrogantly and judge as you read the Old Covenant. But humble yourself and recognize you're common to them. You share a common humanity. And as they did, so also are you to consider God faithful. And he will not let you be tempted beyond your ability. But with this temptation, he will also provide a way to escape that you may be able to endure. Therefore, be from So, point one that we gather here again from 1 Corinthians 10 is already this principle that stands out there. Indeed, we affirm there is life applicational, rich, gospel-centered instruction in the Old Testament. And it is for us. How so? Because we are united into one Savior as one people of God. The next step that we need to make in our strategy of reading and studying and applying. If we say these presuppositions are true, these statements, what we've kind of concluded so far on 1 Corinthians 10, we own that data. The next step to our procedure is this. How do we read this saving instruction rightly? Or how then do we apply this, this confession of ours that that's our literature? That there are our fathers. That there are not two gods. There's not a god of the old one and a god of the new. We own that. We believe you, Paul. It's written for our instruction. But how do we read it? In order that we would be assured of grasping from the examples what we're supposed to grasp. Last again, we turn to a moralistic preaching, and we just turn to a man, and we just say what we want, and we hold him up, and we're all aspiring to him. Indeed, there is instruction, but how can we read it rightly, methodologically, to ensure we're getting the instruction we intended? So that has to be our next step, and it is. The answer is this. This is how we read the text. And how will we particularly Ruth, but indeed how will we read each and every Old Testament text? By the way, I would share just this little side note. If you're on the fence of joining Ladies Bible Study, land on the side of the fence uh, uh, where the Bible Study is being had. Fall on the back side. The same conviction and methodology of which we share with broader church is greatly at work through Nancy Godfrey's material. Um, that's why it, it, it's, it's chosen. It, it, it just, this is that kind of approach. And so uh, I would encourage you, even if you can't attend, people um, will read it, spend some time with it. Again, the beauty of the old covenant scripture just. All right, it can't be me. I'll sign up. From two uh, partners here. How do we read its benefits? From reading it rightly. How do we read it rightly? By two complementary angles. In other words, we look at one Old Testament text. Okay? I have written here a circle on my page. Help me. It's a circle. And there's one arrow going this direction and one arrow going from here to this direction. So, in other words, your mental picture now should have a zero like this on a hole. And in that hole is an Old Testament text. And what you're doing to read that Old Testament text is what I've kind of jotted down here. One arrow going this way to read it and one arrow going this way to read it. And those are two complementary angles 
of this one text we're looking at. What are those complementary angles? <coughs> that we need to, again, they have to be complementary. We have to read them at this angle and at this angle, and these two angles are complementary. They're working together for our grasping of this one text. What are the two? Lest we just do one. If we do one, we'll fail. Either way, we have to do both in order to reap the benefits of what God intended for us. New Testament saints reading Old Testament literature, number one. The first angle is we read the text with our shared sin in mind. That's what Paul noted already there. That again, take heed lest you uh, lest you fall. No temptations uh, overcome you. That is common to our fathers. Oh, how dare they! Sometimes we read the Old Testament text that way. I can't believe that they would make that mistake. Or we'll read the Gospels and we'll say, I can't believe they didn't believe. I'm so surprised that they didn't grasp what was being developed. And we stand in judgment. Take heed, lest you fall. They weren't facing something that isn't facing you. Lest we be arrogant, punk in our reading of the text. We have to read with angle number one in mind. Our shared union to the predicament of sin. That is, the reading, studying, preaching of the Old Testament text becomes Christ-centered rightly when we witness the fallen human predicament, not on some pages, but on every page, that requires the same solution, the divine solution. Every predicament, every Old Covenant member is in the same predicament. Savior. 
The predicament is shared, and so also is the source of power to overcome the predicament. The text is moving from man's plight to the power of God. That's your narrative. And that is the saints of the old covenant narrative. In other words, every text's instruction, every text's instruction points to Christ. And it is our union to Him that Paul makes clear in 1 Corinthians 10. It is our union to Him that unites us to that gospel-centered instruction. Our predicament is made plain. So is his power made plain. Thus, all scripture yields present instruction for the people of God. We should read the Old Covenant text as Christian scripture. For the Old Covenant text saves nourishes, confronts, and provides for the one people of God. A word of clarity is perhaps needed at this moment. Maybe not, maybe so. That is this. I am not suggesting to you, and I don't sense you probably think it, but I am certainly not suggesting to you that every text mentions Jesus by name. I'm not uh, the dullest tool in the room at the moment on the idea of what does he know that Jesus was born for a century. Of course. Again, I'm not arguing that as we look upon Ruth, we'll see that Jesus is everywhere present by name. But I am suggesting my conviction that every text in some relates in some aspect to God's redeeming grace. And that redeeming grace finds its fullest expression in the Lord Jesus Christ. The divine movement of every text is from tragedy to triumph. And the tragedy of every text is our own. And the triumph of every text is his alone. And every text is to God and the Lord. This is how a Christian approaches the Old Testament text. My second portion, again, first I affirm with all of that, as Paul makes clear, that there is indeed life application instruction in every text of the Old Testament as it speaks to us of the grace of God that is most clearly revealed in its fullest form and sourced deeply within the person of the Lord Jesus Christ. And secondly, the second endeavor that we must take in reading the Old Testament text that I hope to dive you in in our time together in Ruth. And as you are alone in your time of reading and consideration of Old Testament text, the second endeavor you and I, together, we must undertake. This is not up for debate. We must undertake in reading the Old Testament. It's simply this. 
we must endeavor to grasp. That is, actively pursue. How the Old Testament text presents us with a clear picture of Christ and his gospel. We believe that there's life application instruction there, but we stop short if we don't yet pursue even further how this Old Testament text presents us with a clear picture of Christ and his gospel. Now, if I said that to you and I didn't prove it, maybe the criticism would be, as is with some, me, but some would argue that that becomes arbitrary. You look at an Old Testament text with some sort of Christianized mandate to go back to the Old Testament and find Jesus behind every bush. Find Jesus in every group and cranny, every verse, every whisper. And that's, a, that's a Christianized personal reading on the Old Testament. You act like you have to do that, like it's necessary to do that. Won't the text simply yield it to you if it's there? Is it really a Christian mandate in reading the Old Testament that our study is a pursuit, unapologetically so, a pursuit of every text to find a clear portrait of the Lord Jesus Christ and the announcement of his gospel? Of course, I am suggesting to you it is a mandate that we read the Old Testament as a that we search it out in such a way as to see a clear portrait of a person of Christ in the announcement of his gospel. How so do we get there? If you turn with me, this is our last time together, if you turn with me to Luke, it's the, the last text we'll look at is simply uh, Luke, from what was read earlier for us together, um, Luke 24, where we see this mandate of a Christian hermeneutic for a Christian interpretation of Old Testament texts. Not some of them, but all of them with an eye toward Christ. Where is the mandate that we must do so? Well, if you're there at Luke 24, I want to read 22 through 27. Jump over to all blood spreads for us already and kind of read 44 and 45 and make a few observations that I think will be off the page at any of us. Luke 24, beginning in verse 22. Moreover, some women of our company they were at the tomb early in the morning, and when they did not find his body, they came back saying that they had even seen a vision of angels who said that he was alive. Now you notice the movement of the text already. We were amazed by this thought. Maybe at that point we think, but Ben writes me so. That would be pretty astounding. Amazing. But the Lord has a different view. Verse 24, some of those who were with us went to the tomb and found it just as the women had said. But him they did not see. Again, they're amazed. Verse 25, he said to them, Old Foolish ones. Now you're thinking, wait, it is pretty amazing that he wasn't there. But why the review? Why call us foolish ones? Wouldn't anybody be amazed by that? The Lord's response, oh foolish ones. And slow of heart to believe. 
believe what? Believe all that the prophets have spoken. What do you mean? Wasn't it not necessary that the Christ should suffer these things and then enter into his glory? Is that, wasn't it stated that it's necessary? I didn't sit in the prophets. Verse 47, and beginning with Moses and all prophets, he interpreted to them all the scriptures, the things concerning himself. Verse 44, then he said to them, these are my words that I spoke to you while I was still with That everything written about me in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms must be fulfilled. What is taking place here in this text? A few brief observations. Simply, we can notice the post-resurrection community being amazed that Christ was nowhere present in bodily form. They are given at that moment by the Lord himself a lesson on how to read your Bible rightly. <laughs> Christ himself plainly teaches them that the Old Testament bears witness of him when rightly read. Notice one observation in verse 25. Again, I point to the fact that they are, in verse 25, rebuked for not believing. And again, maybe we would ask in a quick reading, if we were them, why would they have believed? What would they have believed? How would they have that information on your suffering, your passion, your atonement, your resurrection? How would they know? Believe what? We know. We have it declared. We see it in the fullest canon. We have the New Testament. The Lord sees it differently. He rebukes them for not believing the prophets. Every text speaks of Christ. One other consideration quickly in your mind, you go back to Nicodemus. John 3. Again, you can see it again and again and again in the ministry of Christ. But consider maybe one of the most obvious with Nicodemus. Are you not a scholar in Israel? You're a teacher. And you don't understand the need for heart transformation? You're not grasping regeneration, new birth? Again, you might think, how could he? That is not the perspective of our Lord. It isn't new pronounced that the just shall live by faith in the New Testament. It is mentioned in the prophets. How could he know? Consider just one more observation, and just briefly, in verse 44, the Lord speaks to them out of Moses, prophets, and Psalms. If I could just clarify briefly, that would be at this point in redemptive history, in Jewish understanding, that would simply be the three fold division of the entire Old Testament. So you speak to them from Moses. As we see in John 5, Jesus says, you don't believe. Oh, we read Moses. No, you don't read Moses. If you read Moses, you would read. 
How so? Because Moses spoke of me. So it is that they argue for Abraham. No, Abraham is our father. Jesus says, no, he isn't. Upon what grounds? Because Abraham, Jesus says, saw my day and was glad to see it. How did Abraham see your day? Christ is everywhere present in the Old Covenant Scriptures. So much as to hear an announcement to Abraham, I will be God to you and you will be my people. Abraham saw my day and was so in the prophets, in Acts 3, is this the way that we ought to preach? Is this the way we ought to read? Is this the way we ought to study the Old Testament texts? Well, look at the apostles. After this experience in Acts, it is the early preaching diet of the church. How do they preach? How do they speak? In Acts 3, considering the prophets of what Peter learned perhaps in this episode, he speaks this way in his sermon in Acts 3. And all the prophets who have spoken from Samuel and to those who came after him also proclaimed these days. The unity of the Bible is new in its plan, in its purpose, but in its promise. Finally, consider the Psalms. And I just briefly cite for you, out of the division of the threefold division of the Old Testament, we could again take and take and take and keep going and keep going and keep going. Consider Psalms. We just spent over a year in the book of Hebrews that is largely an extended sermon out of the Psalms. So it is that the apostles knew very well and very clearly after this incident. There is much to do in the Old Testament. Thank you. 
Thank you. 